Are you aching for a love that will never leave? A presence that will push back the dark? If so, I have good news for you. God's love is relentless, even when your faith isn't. Welcome to the Relentless Podcast, a 15-episode podcast designed to give you a behind-the-scenes look at the stories and the biblical history that make up the pages of my newest book, Relentless, The Unshakable Presence of a God Who Never Leaves. My goal here is twofold, first of all, to help you know that you're not alone, and second, to make sure that you have the tools you need to find evidence of God's presence in your story, because he is with you, even if your story doesn't look or feel like you thought it would. Today, we're talking about chapter six. Uh, Chapter six, a cleft in a rock, a God who is with you when you reach the end of yourself. Woo, baby, this one's a, this one is a, a hard chapter, but one of my favorite chapters because it's talking about finding God when you finally hit the end of your rope, rock bottom, whatever you want to call it. The thing is, is I don't just get there once. I've been there a few times in my life, but learning to find God or being able to see glimpses of God's presence when you reach the end of yourself. Um, to begin, let's talk about that. Is it okay is it okay for Christians to reach the end of themselves? Is it allowed? Are we, able, are we allowed to get to a point where we just feel defeated and overwhelmed and tired and done? Uh, the truth is, is there are multiple examples of people in the Bible that got to the end of themselves. People who were righteous and godly and loved God with all of their hearts and they still hit a point where they were done. Uh, Jeremiah is one. He uh, is the weeping prophet. (laughs) And honestly, if you read the book of Jeremiah, it can be rather depressing. He goes from, you know, feeling good about God one moment to just despairing of everything the next. He's a He's a hard one, man. He he goes up and down. He's all over the place. Then we have Paul. Even Paul said in one of his letters that he despaired of life, uh, that he struggled so much that he hit that place where he despaired of life. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his arrest, uh, his agony in the garden certainly sounds like a measure of despair. He is. He even knows uh, that he, I mean, he has experienced heaven, right? He is part of the Trinity. He knows God. And yet he reached that, that place where knowing the agony that was coming brought him to his knees. He was, uh, sweating drops of blood from the agony of what was going to happen today. However, I want to talk about Elijah because that's who I talk about in chapter six, a cleft in the rock. Elijah definitely reached the end of himself. And um, before we dive into that a little bit further, I want to talk about the fact that the fact that there were these amazing, strong, godly leaders in the Bible that got to their end of their their own human capacity gives me great encouragement and great hope to know that when I reach the end of myself, it doesn't necessarily mean something's wrong with me or that my faith is weak or or that I'm not a good enough Christian, whatever that means, um, but that I'm, I'm holding company 
with some amazing people who loved God, who also knew what it felt like to to have nothing left. Uh, And Elijah is one of those. There's two parts that I want to talk about today. The The first part is what it's like to live in that tension between uh, our humanity, uh, the reality of our humanity, and the hope of heaven. Uh, we, this life is a gift. We have so much to be thankful for. There is so much about this life that's good. Uh, just where I'm standing right now in my office recording this, I see sunlight spilling in my window, and it is making me happy. It's, it's that late afternoon sunlight that just, I don't know, there's something about that that is so beautiful to me. I've got my favorite chair over here. I love my office. The way I've set it up, i got books all over the place, and which makes me happy. I've got a wonderful family. I have a new puppy dog that's so sweet. We have a beautiful front yard, the green and the leaves changing. I mean, I could just go on and on. There's a lot about this life that's full of beauty. At the same time, There's a lot about this life that's wrong, too. And living in the tension of this life and the one to come isn't always easy. Uh, If you haven't experienced any pain or suffering, uh, you probably love this life a whole lot, right? So the thought of dying and leaving is not a happy one. You want to hang on to this life with both hands as much as you can. But once you've gone through a certain amount of suffering, especially extended seasons of suffering, You spend a lot of time dreaming of heaven, and that's kind of where I've been over the last few years. Recently, uh, I was texting with one of my good friends, Liz Curtis Higgs, uh, and she and I, uh, she's just become a dear friend as we've walked through different but similar journeys together. And she and I were texting back and forth about Paul's words in Philippians 1, and I'm going to read that to you right now. In Philippians 1, Paul said, and this may sound familiar to you, you've probably heard it before, but he says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. He's facing some significant challenges and his life is on the line. And so he's he's hoping, hopeful that he will have sufficient courage to face it, whether he lives or dies. Any of you that are hanging in a space where you are waiting for a diagnosis or waiting for results of a test or waiting for whatever, you know that tension of of hoping, wanting to have sufficient courage and sufficient faith whether you live or die. That's where Paul is. And then he says this, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. What he's simply saying is it's hard to choose. There's a part of him that longs to depart, to just be done with life, to die and meet Jesus face to face. And I can tell you, I have many days, many moments where I feel the same way. I I long for my body to be whole. I long to not have pain anymore. 
I long to be able to speak and swallow and eat without discomfort or choking and without the pain. I long to be done with all the complicated parts of this life, with things like trauma and um, PTSD and responses and the wounds my children have suffered and the challenges in our extended family and all these different things. I long to depart and be with Christ because I know the moment I see him face to face, oh, it is going to be so good. The joy, I just, I long for it. On the other hand, I love my family. I love my friends. I long to remain. I know that as long as I'm here, God will use my story and my circumstance for great good. And hello, I get to be a part of what he's doing. That's incredible. It will be fruitful labor for me, just like Paul said. And then he says, but what will I choose? Uh, Either way, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And when Liz and I were texting, we both were sharing how It wasn't until we went through what we went through that we really understood these verses on a deeper level. I mean, I've read those verses in Philippians 1 countless times in my life. You know, I grew up chewing on pages of the Bible, right? So I've read this before. I didn't get it until now. I understand the tension Paul's speaking of. I understand his longing for heaven and yet joy at still being here. It's both. It's, it's not either or, it's both and. So that's one thing I wanted to just mention is this tension, uh, it's expected, right? There should be this tension. So to have days where we long for heaven, there's nothing wrong for that. There's nothing wrong with that. To have days longing for Jesus to just come and for us to be done and everything to be made whole, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's okay to celebrate the life that we have too. Um, Life is hard. It certainly has its rich, sweet moments, but uh, more often than not, it packs a serious punch, right? Uh, Man, about the time I think things are getting better and everything's going to be okay, something comes out of left field to surprise me and double me over. It's not easy. So what do we do in those places when we reach the end of ourselves? The last thing we need at those moments is uh, someone to throw a, f- a few uh, cliches or memes our direction, to tell us to just toughen up and, uh, and have more faith. Telling me to have more faith doesn't help when life is hard. Uh, And when people tell me God will never give you more than you can handle, I want to scream. Uh, There was a moment right uh, after treatment. So uh, treatment has a cumulative effect. So this would have been four and a half years ago. Uh, And I had gone through really extensive radiation that had so burned the inside and outside of my body from my nose to my chest. I mean, I was in excruciating pain. It's hard to even describe it. I didn't even know somebody could experience that much pain and still survive. And right uh, toward the end of treatment, I had a day that was particularly difficult. I was struggling with pain. I was dealing with some significant depression as a result of pain and loss and everything else. And I posted on Facebook something to the effect of, today's a hard day, please pray for me. Now, I rarely post stuff like that online. Um, First of all, if I have a hard day and need prayer, I'll contact my closest friends. 
But that day, for whatever reason, probably because so many were praying for me through my journey, I decided to go ahead and say, you know, pray for me. Today's a hard day. Please pray for me. Uh, I would rather offer help than ask for it, but the pain was so much I needed help that day. And so I posted. One woman responded back, I promise you, my friends saw it, they can, <laughs> they can confirm. It's something to the effect of, come on now, Michelle, it's not that bad. You can still walk. You're not in a wheelchair. Toughen up. You'll be fine. Now, I'm paraphrasing. She did mention the wheelchair, and she did say, come on, Michelle, it's not that bad, okay? I'm trying to recreate everything that she said in that text. Uh, But basically, she's like, you have no right to be upset. You have no right to feel weak. Uh, And she was that blunt. It was blunt enough that some of my friends were about ready to jump through the computer screen and, and... Um, have a conversation with her. Um, But the result of her response, uh, this is what she did. She may have thought that she was trying to buoy my faith, to strengthen my faith, to build up my faith. The result, this is what happened. I felt more alone. My physical pain was compounded by shame and humiliation. I felt guilty for not being strong enough. And I sure as heck wasn't going to ask for help again. I mean, all of that happened in the span of one comment. Now, year, I'm, years later, I'm in a different place. I don't have the same amount of pain. And I can clearly see how she was talking out of her own pain, right? Her response was coming from her own pain, all right? So lots of grace and understanding. But at the same time, the way she responded was not helpful, in the middle of pain, I did, in that moment when I was suffering, I did not have the strength or the perspective to be able to counteract the shame fest she basically poured on me in that moment. And as a result, it buried me. Uh, the truth is, though, you know, I'm picking on her, but we do this all the time. You and I, we do this all the time. Um, In different degrees, in different ways, but we still do it. This is on page 92 in Relentless. One of the most dangerous Christian practices and expectations is the compulsion to present a put-together, unflappable faith. On the whole, we haven't done a very good job of making space for a struggle that lasts longer than we think it should. We may give this struggler grace for a day, a week, a month, a year, but sooner than later, we decide it's high time she pulled it together. This pressure, whether spoken or unspoken, only pushes the sufferer to hide and neglect the long, hard process of healing. Oh, isn't that the truth? I've had it done to me, but I know I've done it to others. In my attempt to try to get them to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and find new strength, I load them down with shame, and it doesn't help anyone. So how do we wait well with those who suffer? When people reach the end of themselves, how do we wait well with them? How do we pull up a chair at another's suffering and mourn with them without slipping into preaching, correcting, or trying to judge or fix them? I want us to look at God's example with Elijah. Okay, God's example with Elijah. It's beautiful. Elijah, Elijah was God's prophet righteous, holy, loved God, served him faithfully, did so alone quite often. And at one point in his ministry, he, 
he did a showdown between God and an evil king named Ahab and Ahab's wife Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel believed in a pagan god called Baal, and Elijah believed in the one and only God. And they had this big showdown where God showed up and showed off, and it was beautiful. It was miraculous. Elijah expected that Ahab and Jezebel and everybody else would turn toward God. Instead, Jezebel told Elijah that she was going to kill him, that she would make sure he was dead by this time tomorrow. Uh, not the results he was hoping for. As a result, Elijah took off running, and he ran a long distance, 100 miles over the course of a couple of days, collapsed at the bottom of a, actually longer than a couple of days, but he ran, collapsed underneath a tree, laid down, and basically said, I've had enough. I'm done. I'm finished. Uh, I don't want to do this all anymore. And he said, um, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. That's what Elijah said at that moment in his prayer. Take my life. I'm done. I'm no better than anybody else. What matters to me is how God responds to Elijah. And this is where I'm going to pick up reading. Page 96. It matters to me how God responds to Elijah's despair. Rather than a worthless cliche, he offers Elijah comfort. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some, baked, some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. A second nap. <laughs> the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. That's from 1 Kings 19, 5 through 8. What does God do? He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't quote scripture at him. He doesn't tell him to get his act together or his butt in church. He doesn't tell him how much worse it could be. And he doesn't tell him that he will never give him more than he can handle. There is no bootstrapping, guilt tripping, manhandling, heavy load throwing. Instead, God touches him and feeds him twice. Skin to skin, a tangible acknowledgement of presence, and bread hot out of the oven, comfort food, maybe a casserole with extra cheese, likely a pan of double chocolate brownies. Nourishment of body and soul. Why? Because the journey is too much for you. The journey is too much for you. When Elijah reached the end of himself, God met him there. God was with him when Elijah reached the end of himself. So how can we do what God did? How can we follow God's example with others who suffer? One, meet them where they are. Go to them. Don't wait for them to come to you. God met Elijah where he was. Collapsed, done, at his end. God met him there. We can do the same. We don't wait for them to come to church. We go and find them. We go and sit with them. Number two, we keep words at a minimum. <laughs> Man, God did this so well. He didn't quote scripture, didn't tell him that he needed to memorize more or go to church more or pray more or fast more. He didn't tell him that he wouldn't be in this situation if he would do other things, that he must have done something wrong and that's why he was here. Simply, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. God kept his words to a minimum. 
Elijah wasn't ready for words. He needed presence. Number three, we can meet physical needs. In the absence of trying to wax spiritual about why somebody's in the situation they are, we can simply offer physical touch and physical sustenance. We can reach out and touch somebody to let them know they're not alone. We can make them a meal. We can do something to physically strengthen them. When I was the most sick, when I was, I literally couldn't get up off the couch, I had friends like Kathy Lip and Renee Swope and Crystal Payne and my friend Tangi, who flew on planes across the country. My friend Tangi actually rode a train to come and sit with me. I couldn't do a thing for them. I was way too sick to do anything for them. They would just sit next to me on the couch while I slept. They sat with me three feet away, and they didn't leave. They said very little, but there was a whole lot of physical touch and sustenance, and it's exactly what I needed. So we meet them where they are. We keep our words to a minimum. We meet physical needs, and fourth, we acknowledge their pain. We just acknowledge it. We see it and acknowledge it. The angel, this is verse um, in First Kings 19. He, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Not, God will never give you more than you can handle. Nope, we say, for the journey is too much for you. My friend, we can look at each other in places of suffering and say, I see you. I see how hard this is for you. The journey is too much for you sometimes, and I get it. You have a right to be exhausted. You have a right to be weary. You have a, a right to just want to be done. I'm here. I'm here. I'm going to sit here with you. I'm not going anywhere. So what can you and I do? Altar stone, stone number six. Not only are these four strategies ways we can help somebody else in places of pain, but I also want you to sit in the reality that this is how God responds to your pain. Also, stem number six is looking for God's presence when you've reached the end of yourself. Two major takeaways for today. First, I want you and I to learn how to love people well in places of pain. We can do better. We must do better. We must do better. We, we have people all around us that are suffering and we aren't helping them by piling shame and guilt and expectations on top of their pain. We can just meet them in it. We can take care of their physical needs. We can keep some of our words and comments to ourselves and we can acknowledge how hard it must be for them. Man, can you imagine what would happen to our churches if we learned how to do that better? That's the first takeaway for today. But the second I want you to take, I've already said, I'm going to say it again. I want you to understand that this is how God responds to your pain, your suffering, your questions, your doubt. This is his MO when it comes to his children and their pain. Whatever you've come to believe about how God feels about you and suffering, I want you to see his tenderness with Elijah. This is his heart. This is his character. And today, as you sit and contemplate altar stone six, I want you to look for God's presence with you at the points where you reach the end of yourself. I want you to look for his tenderness. I want you to look for ways that he met you there and sat with you there. I want you to look for ways that he, he sustains you, right? That he fed you 
what you needed at the right time when you could offer nothing back to him. And then as you see that and identify it, I want you to sit with it and believe it even if you don't feel it. God is with you even when you reach the end of yourself, especially then. Well, thank you for joining me, friends. Life is so much easier to endure when we don't have to do it alone. Even better, we have a God who has promised to never leave us. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and I believe him. Now that's something worth living for. Are you aching for a love that will never leave? A presence that will push back the dark? If so, I have good news for you. God's love is relentless, even when your faith isn't. And the circumstances you fear might drown your faith could become the stones giving testimony to it. Join me and let's find evidence of Him together.